Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. What were we created for? To know God. What should be our highest aim in life? To know God. What is the best thing in life, bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? Knowledge of God. Those were the words of Jim Packer in his third chapter of Knowing God. When Jesus defined the essence of eternal life in John 17, 3, he defined it like this. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. How well do you know God? Let me sharpen the focus of that question a little more. How well do you know the triune God? That is the God who presents us to himself, presents himself to us in Scripture as one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This morning we begin a new series that I've called Delighting in Our Triune God, a series on the doctrine of the Trinity, which is by far the most important doctrine in all of Christianity. Now, why do I say that? Well, because this doctrine tells us who the God is who we worship. This doctrine is the source and foundation of all other doctrines, and it is a deep ocean of delight for the believer. Over the next five weeks or so, therefore, we're going to look at various passages that teach us about our triune God to help us grow in both our knowledge of and delight in both the oneness of God and the threeness of God. As we begin this morning, first, I want to say a word on why I believe a series like this is necessary. It's going to be quite different from my usual just expounding chapter by chapter, verse by verse through books. It's going to be a little bit different each week, though. I'm going to take a text and handle it and show how it relates to our understanding of the Trinity. But why do this? Well, as elders, we have discussed the fact that the superficiality of our surrounding culture is finding its way 
steadily into the church in our generation. One of the major ways this superficiality is impacting us in the church is with respect to our knowledge of God. Where previous generations in the history of the church have worked hard to clearly articulate a robust doctrine of and deep delight in the Trinity, our own generation seems to be content to stay in the shallows and to simply assume the doctrine of the Trinity. Instead of clearly articulating the doctrine of the Trinity in our generation, we are assuming the doctrine. Instead of a deep knowledge of and real enjoyment of our triune God, we have at best a vague feeling that the Trinity is somehow true, but we don't seem to go much further than that. Why is this a problem? Because in this shallow and vague place, we are missing out on what we could call the more that there is in God for us. Let me illustrate what I mean. In the biography entitled, Run, Baby, Run, Puerto Rican evangelist Nicky Cruz tells the story of his conversion in the 1950s from being leader of a violent street gang in New York to becoming a Christian. It's a fascinating story. Later on in his life, as he grew as a disciple of Jesus, Nicky Cruz wrote another book called The Magnificent Three. He wrote in that book of how he came to know the triune God and how knowing God as three in one was the most important part of his journey as a Christian. Let me cite a section from what Nicky Cruz, this evangelist, shares about how fundamental knowing God as a triune God was for his discipleship. I quote Cruz, He writes, something has emerged in my walk with God that has become the most important element of my discipleship. It has become the thing that sustains me, that feeds me, that keeps me steady when I'm shaky. I have come to see God, to know him, to relate to him as three in one. God as Trinity, Father, Savior, Holy Spirit. God has given to me over the years a vision of himself as three in one and the ability to relate to God in that way. It's the most single important fact of my Christian growth. What I'm describing is something different from merely believing in the doctrine of the Trinity. I've always believed in the doctrine of the Trinity, but I had never experienced God personally as three in one. It was at first merely a doctrine in which I believed, but now it has become a truth of everyday life. God has developed in me a sense of the separate relationships which I can have with Father, Savior, and Holy Spirit. He has shown me the strength that comes from those separate relationships, the power for living that comes from the three faces of God. He has taught me to feed off the Trinity for my daily sustenance rather than just having some vague feeling that the Trinity is somehow true. Now read that. 
It's my burden as your pastor that we together as a church would be deeply Trinitarian. Not just knowing the doctrine of the Trinity in a vague way, but experiencing the triune God himself, delighting in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit as three persons and learning to feed off the triune God for daily sustenance. Now this may be fresh and new to some of you, The main application in this series along the way is going to continually be simply asking ourselves the question, do we know God in this way? For the more you plumb the depths of Trinitarian doctrine, the more you see that God wants us to think Trinitarianly about everything, creation, redemption, communion with God, how we pray to the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Should we pray to the Spirit or the Son? Should we just pray to the Father? God wants us to know this, understand it, to enrich our communion with Him. So, to introduce the series this morning, we're going to just start with a few very simple lessons from Matthew 28, verse 19. You might find it helpful to open that and have it there in front of you. In Matthew 28, 18 to 20, we have this famous passage known as the Great Commission. In verse 19, Jesus says to his disciples and the others gathered there in Galilee, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, we often think of this passage with respect to how it instructs us as Christians on evangelism and mission, and that's good. But have you ever stopped to consider the significance of this act of conversion and baptism into the Trinitarian name? That's what I want us to focus on this morning. This one verse on baptism into the Trinitarian name gives us two important lessons that are laid down like foundation stones right at the inception of our Christian lives. Lessons about the nature of our triune God and the nature of discipleship. So we're going to look at these two foundational lessons from Matthew 28, 19. And the first is simply this. This verse teaches us, among other things, that the God whose name we are baptized into is a triune God. We are converted and saved, and then that is dramatized in baptism. And this command from Jesus that we are to be baptized into the triune name of God right at the inception of our Christian lives is something that is very significant. Now, the word triune means simply consisting of three in one. And the first thing I want us to notice here in verse 19 is that 
The name we are baptized into is singular and not plural. Notice, we are not baptized into the names of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This introduces us to the first building block in a Christian understanding of the Trinity, and that is what we call monotheism. As Christians, we are monotheists. That means we believe in one God. We are not polytheists, those who believe in more than one God. We do not believe in three gods. The Bible does not speak of three gods. It speaks consistently of one God. There are several texts we could go to to demonstrate this. Perhaps the most clear and well-known is Deuteronomy 6.4, that central confession of the Old Testament saints. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Or Isaiah 44, 6, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Or Isaiah 46, 8 and 9, remember this and stand firm. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. The one true God is not a member of a larger class of gods. He alone is God because he alone is God by nature. He alone is in the category of creator and everything else that exists in the universe is in the category of created. One of the clearest places where this is communicated is in the book of Exodus, the account of the burning bush. In the midst of the exchange between God and Moses, Moses asks for God's name. And God famously says in Exodus 3.14, I am who I am. Now, this revelation of God's name and nature at the burning bush teaches us what we call the aseity of God. It's called the aseity of God because it's built on an old Latin phrase, a se, which means has life in himself. That's what God means when he says, I am. You'll notice the burning bush was not fueled by a gas cylinder sitting beside it with a little pipe fueling the flame. No, God burns with life that is in himself. Nothing else in all of the universe has this characteristic but God. Everything else is dependent on God. God is dependent on nothing. And this name, I am, in Hebrew, transliterated as Yahweh, 
translated in our Bibles with capital letters, Lord, L-O-R-D. When people in the Old Testament spoke of the name, they meant I am, Yahweh, the God who has life in himself. And so in Matthew 28, 19, when we read that we are baptized into the name, we're to be thinking, the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, the God who has life in himself, in some way, when we become Christians, we are enfolded into a relationship with the great I am, with God. But notice now, the other side of this building block of monotheism, this unique name that we are baptized into in Matthew 28, 19, can be said to belong to these three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As you work through Scripture and start with the oneness of God, you come across various texts that exert what we could call Trinitarian pressure onto our understanding of God's oneness. For example, Genesis 1. You can't get far in Scripture before you start to discern that this oneness of God is a little more complex than perhaps we first might think. According to Genesis 1, God brings all of creation into existence through his powerful spoken word. God creates by his word. But he also creates in Genesis 1 by his powerful life-giving Spirit. God speaks all things into his existence. In Genesis 1, we're told that the Holy Spirit is there, powerfully active in the work of creation, hovering like a mother bird over the unformed, unfilled world that God produced. In John 1, the New Testament's account of Genesis 1, we learn that there was also another present at the beginning with God the Father and God the Spirit. And he is called the Word, which is a lovely play on the idea that God the Father speaks things into existence by his Word in the power of the Holy Spirit. So John 1.1 1, 1 begins in the beginning, just like Genesis 1.1 1, 1 begins, or the opening chapter of Genesis begins, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, so distinct from God, and the Word was God, yet shared the same divine essence as God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. So you start to realize, oh, wow. God created all things, not 
through his spoken word as if that was just some abstract force. His word is a person. God the Father creates through his Son in the power of the Spirit. This introduces us to another doctrine that we're going to pick up on throughout this series. It's called the doctrine of inseparable operations. Now, don't let these big terms scare you. It's very, very simple. Inseparable operations just means there is no work that the Father does just as Father. He does all things inseparably with the Spirit and the Son. There is no work that the Son does just by Himself. He does all things with the Father and the Spirit. There are no works that the Spirit does by Himself. He does all things with the Father and with the Son. However, each of the persons of the Godhead are appropriated more fully than others certain acts. And we're going to deal with that as we move forward. But let's sharpen this slightly and listen very carefully then to what God says when he speaks of creating man, because it, it, it should be no surprise to us. In Genesis 1:26, when God speaks of creating man, we read, then God said, let us make man in our image. Now that should just capture your attention straight away. After our likeness. Then in Genesis 3.22, after the fall, then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Not a word there on God saying, let me make man in my image. God, man has become like me. No, the divine plural certainly seems to indicate that though this God is one, there are three persons. There are, there's more than one person within this divine God, this divine being. And as we go through Scripture, there are lots of places we could go to to show that both the Son, the Word, is considered to be of the same divine stuff as God. Sorry to use that term, but I want to use it intentionally. John 10, 30, for example, Jesus speaks and says, I and the Father are one. That's fascinating, isn't it? I and the Father are one. God, Jesus teaching us that there is oneness in God, and yet there can be a plurality of persons in God without there being a contradiction. Colossians 1.15, speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3, speaking of Jesus, he is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. We could go to lots of places to demonstrate also that the Holy Spirit is of the same divine stuff as God. He is called repeatedly throughout the Bible, the Spirit of God, and in the New Testament, the Spirit of Christ. And you might say, well, that's just a force. It's just a force emanating out of God. Well, it can't be because we're told that he is a he. We're told that he can be grieved. We're told by Jesus that he had, Jesus would have to go away so that he could send another like him from the Father through him, the Spirit. 
down through the history of the church, when Christians have read of the oneness of God and yet of the attribution of divine to the Son and the Spirit, they've had to put together, how do we put together the oneness and this Trinitarian pressure that we see when the Son is spoken of divine and the Spirit is spoken of divine as divine? And creeds and confessions have been articulated to try and capture in a nice statement what is meant. And perhaps the most concise definition of the doctrine of the Trinity is this. Our God exists, and he is one in essence and three in person. The Father possesses all that makes God, God. The Son possesses all that makes God, God. And the Spirit possesses all that makes God, God. And we could spend a long time thinking about how the Father relates to the Son and how the Father and the Son relate to the Spirit and how the Spirit relates to the Father. And I hope we will. Because it's really important for us to understand that God has revealed himself to us always as a triune God. The Father was never the Father by himself. The Father has always been the Father of the Son. The Son has never been the Son in himself. He has always been the Son of the Father. The Spirit is always spoken of as being there right with the Father and the Son. So there was never a time when the Son was not. There was never a time when the Spirit was not. There was never a time when the Father existed by himself. The Father has always revealed himself as Father of the Son. The Son is always revealed as the Son of the Father. And the Spirit is always revealed as the Spirit of the Father and the Son. All of that from that one little verse, Matthew 28, 19, baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So there's foundational lesson one. Our God reveals himself as a triune God. The God into whose name we are baptized is a triune God. But now, foundational lesson Two, flowing out of this revelation of the nature of God, we must start to see that the gospel is Trinitarian shaped. The gospel reflects the nature of the triune God. There is much to be said on this, and I hope over following weeks to say a lot more. but in an introductory way, let's just think about it in this way. When someone becomes a Christian, God has set it up that this ordinance of baptism would be administered to communicate something profound about what has happened to that person. And God has ordained that when we are baptized and when our conversion is dramatized, 
God has ordained that we be baptized into the triune name because he wants us to think of this profound thing. He wants us to think of our conversion in a Trinitarian way. What do I mean? Well, baptism is a sign and seal of the new covenant, signifying our covenant union with the one true God. Who is he? Well, we've seen here, Matthew 28, 19 tells us he's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And God wants this triune name to be proclaimed at our baptism because he wants us to know and proclaim that our salvation is accomplished by each of the persons of the Godhead. The gospel is Trinitarian in its shape. And so, when we are proclaiming publicly in baptism that we have become Christians, there is to be a declaration of the threefold name. God the Father, in love, sent the Son into the world that we would not perish but have eternal life. The Father in salvation pledges to be our Father. And upon conversion, dramatized by baptism, we are immersed into this fatherly love and commitment. The Son willingly came to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. He pledges to be our Savior, Redeemer, Head. We are immersed into all the benefits of union with Him and the new life He gives by the regenerative power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit willingly pledges to indwell and sanctify us and lead us to our eternal inheritance. He empowers our salvation and directly applies the accomplishments of the Son to our lives. We are immersed into His life-giving presence. So this is beautiful when you read of being baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You're getting a summary of what each of the persons of the Godhead have pledged to do for us. The Father to be our loving Father, the Son to be our saving Redeemer, the Spirit to be our life-giving counselor and guide. In Ephesians 2.18, Paul writes a lovely summary, for through Him, the Son, we have access in one Spirit to the Father. Baptism into the triune name is a picture of everything that the triune God pledges to be to us and to give us through the gospel. And our calling as Christians is to really work out in our day-to-day lives what it means to live in the goodness of the triune name. And now I want us to really apply this. I'm arguing here that when you become a Christian, You enter into a fundamental faith union with the triune God through Christ or enfolded into the communion of the Trinity. And that your baptism, when that conversion goes public, there should be a proclamation of the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And for the rest of our lives as Christians, we're to work out what it means to live in the goodness of the triune name and what it means to reflect the triune God in our lives. Not just God in general, but to reflect the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in each of their persons, 
in our lives. Every part of our Christian lives is to be shaped by the Trinity, not just vague sense of God. Now, there are two specific levels that I want us to think about this a little bit more carefully. First, understanding how to live in the goodness of the triune name means that we are to learn how to enjoy communion, not just with God in general, but how to enjoy communion with the three persons of the Godhead. I mean here, we are to cultivate intentionally a relationship with the one God by getting to know personally the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So communing with the Spirit as a person, communing with the Son as a person, communing with the Father as a person, learning to delight in, in the Father as opposed to the Son, and the Son as opposed to the Spirit, and, and learning to delight in our triune God as they are revealed in Scripture, but all the while knowing as you think of the differentiation between the persons, you're continually enfolded back into the oneness. Listen again to Nicky Cruz, who I introduced to you in the beginning. Listen really carefully to what he speaks about this in his life as a disciple. God has developed in me a sense of the separate relationships which I can have with the Father, the Savior, and the Holy Spirit. He's shown me the strength that comes from those relationships, the power for living that comes from the three faces of God. He's taught me to feed off the Trinity for my daily sustenance rather than just having some vague feeling that the Trinity is somehow true. You see, the Bible clearly teaches that believers are invited into an enjoyable and real fellowship with each of the members of the Godhead. In John 14, 23, Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and we will make our home with him. In John 16, Jesus spoke of the relationship we could enjoy with the Holy Spirit as our helper, our guide, and our comforter. And this is summarized beautifully by the Apostle Paul in the grace of 2 Corinthians 13, 14. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, the Father, that is, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. There's something lovely in that. John Owen, in fact, has written a book called On Communion with God, where he takes this very text and he looks at what it means to commune with the Father in his love, to commune with the Son in his grace, and to commune with the Spirit with real fellowship that stirs our affections for the Son and the Father. We are called to cultivate real communion with the God who is one and the God who is three. There's a man called Gregory of Nazianzus in the fourth century who spoke of this communion with the triune God in a wonderful way, and you probably heard this in my prayer at the beginning. Gregory of Nazianzus, 4th century, that's the 300 this guy was speaking of this stuff. He says, no sooner do I conceive of the one than I'm illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I'm carried back to the one. When I think of any one of the three, I think of him as the whole, and my eyes are filled, and the greater part of what I'm thinking of escapes me. I can't grasp the greatness of that one so as to attribute a greater greatness to the rest. When I contemplate the three together, I see but one torch and cannot divide or measure out the undivided light. Now that 
is anything but superficial. And I, in this series, along with our elders who have discussed this together, we want to call us back to a Trinitarian historic understanding of Christianity. To rediscover not superficiality, but depth and delight in our triune God. Lest it be lost in our generation and assumed, and then we drift away. This understanding of cultivating communion with God, the triune God, has implications for the shape of our prayer lives and for the shape of our worship. And we will be dealing with this as we go on. Do we open our prayer saying, dear Jesus, thank you. Do we pray to the Holy Spirit? There are no, not that I know anyway, not that I know of, I don't think there are any explicit prayers to the Holy Spirit in all of the Bible. What does that mean? Do we pray to the Holy Spirit? Do we direct all prayer to the Father through the Son and by the Spirit? Well, what do those prepositions mean? What does that even mean? This is all that I hope we have to look forward to as we think through the outworking of this practical doctrine of the Trinity carefully. But the second implication of knowing our triune God as a triune God is simply this. In Matthew 28, 19, we're told that we're baptized into this name. Becoming a Christian is a naming ceremony. Your baptism is a naming ceremony. As Christians... We are bearers of the divine name. And our primary calling in life is to enjoy that name and to wear that name well. This is the essence of the commandment we are given in the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now this commandment is so often reduced down to just not blaspheming God's name in our speech. That is a complete reductionism of what that commandment means. The idea of not taking the name up wrongly. It means carrying, bearing, wearing the name. I've illustrated this in the past by a time when I was playing rugby and we were presented with our jerseys and this man made this big rousing speech and he, he talked about everything that the, the jersey signifies. And, and at the end of his rousing speech, he said, lads, as you go out today, wear it well. Think of everything it represents. Well, that's the essence of what Jesus is getting at in the Great Commission. As you go into the world, as you go back into your family this week, into your workplace, into all the relational interactions you have, your calling is to work out what it means to bear the triune name and to reflect it well in all areas of your life. We're to think, what does it mean for me this week at work to reflect the self-giving love of the Father? What does it mean for me to reflect the humble, sacrificial, self-giving heart of Christ? What does it mean for me to reflect the comforting and encouraging ministry of the Holy Spirit? 
How can I wear the name well and reflect the Father and the Son and the Spirit and all of their wonderful works in salvation? How can I in some small way reflect them in my life? That is why we were created, to reflect the triune God. Not just vaguely God in general. So let's get back to my opening question. How well do you know the triune God? At the outset of our series, I would invite you to pray with me now. Lord, I want to know you more. Please teach me how to enjoy you as you want me to. This Trinitarian God has opened his arms to welcome lost sinners so that we can be enfolded into the most amazing communion with the triune God, invited into the goodness of the eternal glory, joy, love, and delight of the Trinity. That is what we are invited into. That is what we are called to enjoy. And the only way in is through Jesus Christ and his salvation. So maybe at the outset of this series, you're going to realize, I'm outside of all this. You can come to Christ and have your sins forgiven and have nothing holding you back from being enfolded into the glorious, happy land of the Trinity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all that you have given to us in your Son. And Father, along with your Son, we thank you that through Jesus we have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Our God, we have called this series Delighting in You, the Triune God. Lord, there's nothing more important for us to think about than who you are. And we want to understand you rightly. Yes, Father, your ways are above our ways, so our finite, finite minds cannot know you fully, but we can know you truly as you have revealed yourself. And I pray that this morning we would make a commitment in our hearts to step out of the shallows and the superficial vagueness and that we would find ourselves swimming in a bottomless ocean of delight as we contemplate the glory of the one God in three persons and the three persons in one God. And as we respond now and think of where we are enfolded into the communion of the triune God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, celebrated in this other great dramatic act, the Lord's Supper, we just pray that we'd be refreshed together from the inside out and that we would be thinking ourselves this week, how do I go in to this week and wear the name well? For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to respond and as we prepare our hearts for communion, 
we're going to sing the first two verses of There is a Redeemer, and I thought this would be helpful along with our other Trinitarian hymns this morning so that we can remember these wonderful, inseparable works of our God in salvation. So we'll stand and sing the first two verses. Then if you can get your bread and your cup at the ready, we will just move straight in to this time of remembering Jesus' death and the way that he's appointed. <laughs> 